Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. As some of you know, I grew up in Montreal, where I had the good fortune to attend a high-quality school called Selwyn House. And as it turned out, my graduating class of about 40 boys went on to do some pretty amazing things. One is a famous Canadian artist. Others became bankers, engineers, accountants, lawyers, and ad executives. There's also at least one doctor, thoracic surgeon Talat Chugtai, who's appeared on this podcast in the past to talk about COVID. One friend I still keep in touch with is a successful chemist. Another is one of Canada's leading veterinarians. One guy became a pilot, and last time I checked, was flying 747s from Toronto to Hong Kong. Yet another went into film, and there are at least two professional writers, me and another Torontonian, who became one of Canada's best-known food writers. There are also at least four members of my graduating class who went on to the American West Coast to make their careers in the tech industry, and two of them became senior executives at Microsoft. Last month, one of those two, David Jones, retired after a remarkable three-decade career at Microsoft, a career that saw him help oversee the development of core features of Microsoft Office, harness Microsoft's basic research operations, manage the creation of an early tablet-style PC that predated the Apple iPad and Microsoft Surface, and lead the company's envisioning center, which has given the corporate world a futuristic look at what workplace technology might someday bring us. In fact, David allowed me to pay a visit to the Envisioning Center a few years back when I was doing a cover story on technology for a Canadian magazine called The Walrus. This month, my old classmate came on the Quillette podcast to tell me about what he witnessed during these three crucial decades in the development of personal and business technology at a company that, in the early 90s, felt like still something of a startup, but which now earns almost $200 billion in annual revenue and employs more than 200,000 people among the subjects we discuss, Dave's occasional meetups with Bill Gates and former CEO Steve Ballmer, and a certain animated Microsoft Office help assistant that Mr. Gates once angrily christened TFC, for reasons you'll hear us discuss. Dave, we went to high school together, and um, it was pretty early in the days when computer science was, was integrated into, I guess it was middle school and high school curricula. Uh, we had a small computer room. Can you tell me a little bit about how you related to those early days? You know, we're old timers. We're in our 50s. This was, I think this was even before Apple was popular. We had these antiquated machines called, I think, Southwest Tech computers with these like giant dinosaur disk drives. They're basically stuff. mini computers. It was a Southwest Tech there was a you know this big mini computer we weren't allowed near it and there was terminals and you could use the terminals right and and the southwest tech i remember there was three terminals i think you could even send messages to each other which felt like something from star trek we could we discovered that at one point and i remember i think it was ricky hart we started sending him messages he was convinced the computer was talking to him <laughs> but yeah just i mean to to go back that was if this was 7th grade i'm guessing it was early 80s maybe 81 i'd have mr very mr very was mr very was the teacher but I, I remember they were giving us a tour of the school we were the new students uh, we were walking through the library and they were talking about how wonderful the library was it had so many books and I was like looking the other way into this tiny little dark room with this strange eerie green glow from the screens and all these blinking lights. 
And I was captivated. I remember it was like a little annex to the library. It was like a closet at the time, yeah. I remember from the start, there were a couple of kids in the class who, if you were having a problem with your own computer assignment, I think we were programming in BASIC. BASIC, I think some of the younger right. kids, it was Logo. Uh, and if we had problems, you know, there was one or two fellow kids we could go to, de facto TAs. And I think you were one of them. When you ended up at Microsoft eventually, this is after you took engineering in university, did you find it a place full of people like you? Much in the way that college football teams, everyone there was the star of their high school football team. Was it like that, where it was a room full of Dave Jones's people who had all been very precocious with computers when they were in their tween and teen years? Yes, absolutely. Although I'd go so far as to say, I felt like the dumbest person in the room. They were always, they, they seemed to know much more about it, had been involved much longer, had so much more experience. Can you situate us because... This is 1993. There's whole Silicon Valley empires that have, have risen and fallen in the space of half that time. Where was Microsoft on the garage experiment to behemoth spectrum? So I, I believe Microsoft was founded in 75. I think Bill and, uh, and Paul Allen, just you know, a very small company. At the time I joined in 93, it had grown considerably. Windows had shipped already. And it was, I think, we were, when I got there, Windows 311 was the, the current version. I think it was the most stable version of the pre-95 Windows. Yeah, I think Windows 311 was Windows for work groups, where you could have a local area network. So all the computers in a company could be connected together in a network. And that was sort of the first stable version that I was aware of. And that seemed to be very successful. <laughs> and just to give younger listeners a taste of kind of where the world was at in terms of Windows, uh, here is a promotional video recorded by Bill Gates. I think this was maybe a year or two before the period we're describing, but it's from that era. Hello, I'm Bill Gates, chairman of Microsoft. In this video... You're going to see the future, Windows. Today, the leading software users have switched into the Windows environment. It's really incredible how quickly our powerful applications like Word and Excel and PowerPoint have been adopted. It's not just Microsoft applications, even companies like WordPerfect. You showed up and they slotted you into the spreadsheet team? So I was working on Excel. And because I had experience working with spreadsheets prior to coming to Microsoft. I should point out, though, when I joined Microsoft, I had never used Windows before. I'd never used a computer with a graphical user interface. GUI. GUI, yeah. That was one of the big shifts in industry that was going on at the time. I think it's time for us to educate younger listeners about the wonders of DOS. Because I think at this time, I was still using, I think I was using DOS 5.0, which was a very stable version of DOS. And basically, this is, um, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of how a 25-year-old would process this information. But it's like in a sci-fi movie where the hero is entering a password on a text-only screen. It's a command console. That's kind of what all of computers were like. Way back when, when we had the, the Apple IIs, you would just turn on and you'd see like random video memory displayed and you have to boot up some sort of operating system. You'd hit six control R or something. So you show up there, they show you what a mouse looks like, but this was before Microsoft was being investigated. Yeah, this for... is, Microsoft was like a startup back then, a successful startup, but IBM was the dominant industry player. Lotus123 was the dominant spreadsheet player. We were hoping by building Excel on Windows and on the graphical user interface that we could leapfrog the industry and become a larger player in the industry because we felt that ultimately a, a computer with a graphical user interface was much easier to use, which turned out to be true. 
if you're younger than 40, you kind of always think of Microsoft as this dominant incumbent in most of the fields in which it operates. But what you're describing, even though I guess Microsoft wasn't a pure startup then, it saw itself as, as the underdog in, in this field. We saw this opportunity. The personal computer revolution was playing out. The, the company had a bold vision of, you know, remember that Bill Gates said a computer on every desk, basically. And that was an, a, a very ambitious vision when there were industry leaders who were saying, like, why would anyone want a computer in the home? I mean, I think as late as 77, I think the chairman of DEC famously said that line at a conference and he's been quoted ever These since. These lines are played for laughs now, but there were people with gigantic IQs who said like they saw the market for computers as maybe there was like a hundred in the world or something like that. <laughs> exactly. It's hard yeah. to imagine Microsoft as having like a kind of insurgent culture, but is that how you felt? Well, it's energizing. You join a group of people who not only are into computers as well, it's not just seen as some strange side interest, but they see tremendous opportunity and the whole organization is moving very quickly towards, you know, fulfilling this vision. And, and in some ways you, you show up and you feel like you've gotten let into this special train station, but the train doesn't stop. It's still going full speed and you have to run up, catch it and jump on. Right now I'm temporarily fast forwarding to your later career where you're senior executive. Is it in a way easier to motivate people and recruit people and energize them when you're in that phase trying to revolutionize the industry as opposed to when when you are the industry and maybe more a case of just retaining a dominant market position? That's an interesting question. I think people are motivated for different reasons. I think clearly early on, there's people who saw the vision for, for what the personal computer industry could become and they were just, they just wanted to be part of it. Right. You know, like someone like myself, I lit up when I first saw my first computer and I, I felt invigorated by doing anything with computers, even spreadsheets, for example. That's how I ended up working on the Excel team. I just like working with spreadsheets. I'm one of those weird people that my brain likes it. No, no, I, I get it. Because I remember we used something called VisiCalc when we were in high school. Yeah. I mean, it's hopelessly outdated. But in a way, we regarded that as big data because there were like a yeah. hundred numbers and you could manipulate them all at once. Exactly. There, there's a group of people who join because, hey, this is what I'm interested in. I'm driven by my passion. And they don't think about it as where could this go? What could it lead to? They're just, I, I'm just excited to go work with other people who feel the same way about it as me and let's go do some cool stuff together. Then today, I think, you know, the, the tech industry has been so successful. There's a lot of people who join because they, they have dollar signs in their eyes. They're like, well, I, right. I see the opportunity here in terms of how much money could be made because things can scale so quickly. And so I see more of the latter these days where people are motivated by the financial upside and they see all the, the growth of the tech industry and all the tech millionaires. They're like, hey, I, that's, that's how I want my career to be. One of the phenomena you see, and not just in tech, is that a successful teacher will become a principal or a successful reporter will become a managing editor. You go from doing what you love to managing other people, doing what they love. Is that something you experienced? And, and, and if so, how do you manage that? Absolutely. So I've moved in and out of management multiple times over the course of my career. Basically, what did I do at Microsoft? I was what Microsoft calls a program manager. It's often referred to as a product manager outside of the company, but this is a role that was actually invented in the 80s on the Excel team to help developers work more effectively. But basically, my role is to understand some customer need or market opportunity, conceive of or work with a group of people to conceive of and develop a solution to satisfy that need and then work with them to, to develop it and bring it to market. And my responsibility is to sort of manage that process. And you can apply this at different scales. You can add like a feature to an existing product. You can create a brand new product or it could be some, you know, larger collection of services. These kind of sit above the coders. 
Above is the wrong, maybe with the coders. The, the whole mm -hmm. the reason it exists is if you're not writing code, you're not moving the company forward. So you want to free up as much the developers mind share to do deep code writing. In order to do that, they have to know what code needs to be written, what's the problem I'm trying to solve, how does it relate to all the other pieces it needs to interface with. But then you migrated into something that was a lot more blue sky free thinking. And, yes. and this is when I was working at a magazine at the time, and um, I was able to do a feature that involved covering some of the work you did. Tell us a little bit about that. I was toward the end of your career at Microsoft, but... So the first half of my career was traditional program management. I started on the Excel team, spent seven years there. Then I wanted to do a brand new product. So I worked on an incubation project that became the tablet PC team. That was all about pen-based computing. We had a product that came out in early 2000s, the Microsoft tablet PC. That wasn't particularly successful, but the technology lives on in the surface line of computers. Then I sort of said, okay, I want to do something completely different. And I took a series of, of, of very different types of roles. Uh, one was I worked in research for a couple of years, studying the breadth of basic research that Microsoft does in our six labs around the world and looking at how can we apply that research in our productivity tools. And then I took the role that you're familiar with, where I worked on Microsoft's envisioning team, which was a, a small a group of multidisciplinary designers who had this charter to go explore the future of work through the lens of human-centered design. And I visited the lab and it was kind of like at the beginning of every James Bond movie where Bond is touring the weapons lab where they're developing new stuff. And you see just people doing all this cool stuff in the background. I mean, it wasn't like flamethrowers and minefields, but it was some pretty mind-blowing stuff. We, were, we got to play with all the latest tech and say, what could you do with this? And then create these really compelling demos to share with customers and partners to get feedback on early ideas. It was such an, a, a special job. I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to go and play like that at work for such a long period of time. And then just to round out the narrative, my last role was uh, in something we call customer co-innovation, where basically, similar to the envisioning work we did, we would go and partner with one of our... Sorry, I, I missed that. Customer conification? Customer co-innovation. Okay, so I thought you were in a cone with your customers. You no, know, co, like innovation together, innovating together with another organization where we would select one of our best customers and say, hey, we want to go and you know, rethink one of your mission critical business processes. Let's reinvent it with all the new technology. Can you give us an example? So yeah, one I can talk publicly about is uh, we, I worked with a company in Europe called Walters Kluwer. They're a big uh, professional services software provider. They make software for hospitals and lawyers and so forth. And I worked with their legal and regulatory vision. And we took a stab at reinventing legal workflows using document understanding AI. So imagine if you had a machine learning service that could extract legal context from a document. How could you use that to change the way lawyers work? This is emerging technology right now where computers can, can read and understand documents well enough that we can start to do interesting things with that information. I don't think society will permit technology that reduces the amount we spend on lawyers, though. I think there'll be popular uprising on that. <laughs> interesting. That's one of the dynamics that we run up against in industry that builds by the hour. That being said, there's a lot of motivation to, I mean, the way that I could frame it is it helps lawyers do better work. Do you want to be on the side that has the, the machine learning combing through all of the possible case histories and rulings and providing analytics on what worked and didn't work or not? So I think there's a stereotype of computer coders, and I think I lived this stereotype when I was a computer programmer in engineering, where you'd go into a basement office. I literally, at McGill University, I literally worked in a basement office. 
and just sit there into the wee hours coding by yourself. And it's just you and debug it yourself. And it's a completely solitary activity. And then there's kind of like the world of Dilbert, where it's just endless series of meetings and, and stuff. And there's a guy who's in the computer industry here in Toronto who I play disc golf with. His name is Pete. And when he describes what he does, it's it's very much the second one where he's part of a pod or metapod or like there's just this constant flow of jargon which describes how people work together. And his job is like he's a coach that helps pod leaders interact with other pods. He just describes this endless series of meetings. And I, when I'm listening to his stories, I'm like, when do people actually, when do their fingers touch the keyboards and when are they coding? Has the industry become kind of top-heavy with organizational behavior proceduralism, which can inhibit people from doing productive work? It's an interesting question. I think the industry has grown so much that when you say coding now, that can mean so many different things. I mean, there's all these no-code platforms. What does that mean? Well, basically, you can stitch together different computer services without having to write code. You can almost like drag and drop, connect dots between modules. The computer does the work of figuring out, okay, what has to happen here? So basically, if you ever created a flowchart in a program like Visio, yeah. you can imagine creating a flowchart for what you want the program to do, and then that just gets translated into code behind the scenes. Yes, there are cases where you have solitary coders who are there you know, rewriting some kernel code where they go dark for several days and, and they figure it all out in their head and they, they type it out. And there's also projects where you have 20 to 30 developers who all have to coordinate together, hence the meetings and the, 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 the scrum, daily scrum and all that sort of stuff, the process that allows everybody to coordinate. The stereotype of people who are good at coding is that maybe they're a little spectrum-y and they're not people persons. Absolutely. That there is, there's a truth to that. But you've always, maybe this is a secret to your success, you've always struck me as somebody who's, who's the opposite of that. You, you can operate in the social sphere and also in abstract mathematical realms. But as, as a manager, is, is this something you had to confront? I've had multiple employees who worked for me who were on the spectrum. And you have to manage them differently, but they, are, they can be in, incredibly high performers. And some of the best developers I've seen, I mean, look at Bill Gates, he's Asperger's. There's, there's clearly a correlation for some people of coding proficiency and, and, and thinking through complex coding problems and uh, being on the autism spectrum. We were talking about sort of infamously wrong predictions about the future of technology. I think Bill Gates, one of the quotes attributed to him is that he's, did he say the internet is a fad at one point? I'm skeptical of that one because, you know, remember he wrote that book, The Information Superhighway? You know, in the early 90s, we knew there was this potential to, inter to connect all these computers together. And uh, the internet existed, but it wasn't really popular. ARPANET. Yeah, ARPANET. Yeah. And so we knew it was going to happen, but no one, nobody knew exactly how it was going to happen. But was that part of your excitement? Because I know, I think it was uh, Mosaic, which was the browser and the World Wide Web. Around the same time. Was that one of the things that you said, oh, I can't wait to be an early adopter of the internet? And Because you showed up and it was around that time the internet was, was blowing up. So yes and no. This is a little funny here because I, I saw the potential of connecting all these computers together and everybody have it. I, I sort of intuitively felt, yes, this is going to be, it's going to change the world because it's a new fundamental capability. But I remember the first time I saw the internet, we had a special meeting and somebody had like managed to bring the internet into one of our meeting rooms and, and we all showed up and there it was, there was a cable. <laughs> this is the internet. It was like, I think a purple cable. It looked the same as all the other cables. Sorry, just, I, sorry, I got to ask, how did, 
the internet manifest itself in the room? Well, it was on a computer. This computer is connected to the internet. Be careful. So all of you were like Ricky Hart back in middle school. The world was talking to you through the talking computer box. We gather around. We're going to get this demo of the internet. And it was <laughs> graphical at the time. And we, and basically, this the guy demoing opened up a text file on some computer in California somewhere. And we're all like, that's dumb. But that's you could do that with Archie and all these other Unix-based systems. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, when I first saw the internet, I was like, what's the point? Yeah, I don't need to worry about this. So that was like a lesson I learned early on is, you know, you have to be careful when you see the early <laughs> incarnations of, of, of technologies because they can grow into something much bigger and they will grow into something much bigger and better and different from the thing you just saw. And that goes back to your comment about folks who, who make these sweeping generalizations about there's no need for a computer in the home. They are thinking about computers as they understand them and not as computers as they are going to be a decade or so. One of the things I remember from my visit to Microsoft, I think I was talking to general counsel, and we were talking the context of privacy and security. And I forget the term he used, but he was basically saying that before the 90s, privacy and security was achieved by sticking your diskettes in... A locked drawer. How did it change the culture when suddenly, I guess this is a couple of years after this <laughs> high-tech demonstration that you just described with the purple cable... How did it affect everyone's job when suddenly it was, wait a sec, the spreadsheet that we're helping people produce, if the person doesn't know how to use the computer properly, it could be information read all over the world because the guy has an unguarded purple cable going into his computer. Like that must have massively changed the way you approach your job. It did. We had a big, big security push. I can't remember what year it was. I would say probably mid to late 90s, if I'm just guessing, where we said, okay, everybody, we're going to stop what we're doing and we're going to go and really focus. And we did security reviews where we would sort of architecturally work through every layer of, of software and, and basically, you know, say what, what all the things that, a, that, a, that an attacker could do here and all the various types of attacks. So I want to talk about Bill Gates. So I'm just going to hold this up. I'm here on, on Zoom with Dave. Podcast listeners can't see it. So this is a book that I just reviewed for Quillette. The book's called After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. And although the whole book is situated after Jobs died, he's a major character in the book because he was the prototypical tech genius with this incredible vision. But in the book, he comes off as just a really unpleasant person. Often he and Bill Gates are held up as these kind of like peas in a pod. But it sounds to me, and I know that you had at least glancing contact with Bill Gates, it sounds like Bill Gates was actually like a nice guy in terms of his day-to-day -day presence at the company. I mean, yes, I would I would characterize him that way. But I think the way people who would, who would mostly experience, he's a very, very intelligent man, like smarter than anyone I've ever encountered in my life. And to watch him dig deeply at a problem, or he, he likes to be, he really likes to test ideas and test understanding and make sure you've thought through something. And he, he's, he can be combative. Did you find he would sometimes expose shortcomings in your own ideas? I never had to go and present. I've presented with him, fortunately, never to him where I was under the, the laser beam of his intellect. Uh, but he, he will s slice and dice you if you're, if you are not ironclad in your argument and thinking, he will find that weakness and he will dismantle it, which can be very unpleasant. The truth is people are terrified of him. <laughs> he, they're terrified because, you know, there, there's a whole thing at Microsoft where you'd count the number of times. Somebody in the meeting, when you present to him, they'd count the number of times he said, fuck. 
you know, and there's the fuck meter. And if, you know, based on how well the meeting went was how many, you know, the fewer times he said fuck, the better it went. Because he was, he would really challenge your ideas and he would, he would be combative and be like, you know, you're, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Who hired you? You're trying to contrast between Bill and Steve. I don't know either of them well, but I've been close enough to both of them to sort of at least have a, a rough opinion. Bill is an architectural genius very technical. And, you know, he's a visionary as well. And he saw the sort of technical potential for computers. I think where Steve is different is he, he really believes in simplicity and he puts design first. And he really, he sort of always wanted Apple to be simpler and hide complexity. And for the longest time, that meant things were less functional, but he'd rather preserve that sort of ease of use over capability. I would sort of characterize them different in that sense. And where that intersected with my career was around the tablet effort where, you know, Bill was a big fan of, of pen input and handwriting recognition. He, he felt that you should be able to write on a computer screen, whereas Steve hated the pen. And he's like, no, you know, I just want to use my finger. Although they created the Newton. Yep. And I, maybe he, that's where he learned his lesson. He said, never again. And then when he came out with the iPad, you know, it was all finger based. So just, just to be specific, when you were doing your tablet work at Microsoft, and again, this is pre-surface, it sounds like you're working on a sort of proto-surface. This is early 2000s. Was this what we would now call a multi-touch interface? So at the time, the capacitive screens that you use today, where you can sort of touch them lightly and they're very responsive, those were not, either they didn't exist or they weren't economically viable. We had at the time what were called uh, active digitizers, where you had a pen that could communicate with the screen. Uh, Well, that doesn't sound useful at all. No. So at the time, one of the people I worked closely with on that project actually knew Steve very well and used to share Steve's comments about what Steve thought about the pen. And it was very clear that he was not a fan at all of this approach. Then you asked about sort of it's inevitable that companies will get large and and eventually stop being innovative. I do think there is some sort of dynamic like that. You see it in in many different products and many different industries. So I don't know if it's unique to the computer industry. However, I do think it's in a very dynamic industry, it's possible for companies to reinvent themselves. And I think Microsoft is one of the, the rare companies that has reinvented itself. Uh, whereas old school Microsoft used to be all about Windows. Remember Steve Ballmer, Windows, Windows, Windows. Now you don't hear as much about Windows anymore. Now it's about the cloud. So I thought it was developers, 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 isn't it? Yeah, yes. That's, that's his <laughs> other Ballmer's. line. Developers, 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 <laughs> you know, building on Windows, Windows, Windows. Everything had to run Windows. Here, let's let's play a section of that famous uh, developers, 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 because that kind of became a developers, meme. Developers, 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 developers. And that I don't even know the context of that. I assume it was some kind of like morale building Microsoft convention. Internal meetings, yes. But and but I didn't even realize that he was playing off a pre-existing meme. Oh, I don't know which came first, but he was he was a huge fan of Windows. Windows was the soul of the company. And not I mean, not a lot of people know that much about Bomber, but in my case, the only thing I know is that freakish video. Tell us about him. You asked whether Bill was a nice guy. I don't know Bill well enough to to really give anything concrete there. He's always been civil, or at least to me. But Steve Ballmer is one of the nicest people. You know, a genuinely, genuinely nice guy, super thoughtful, cares deeply about the company. I had the opportunity to talk to him in more depth once when he asked me if I would take one of his best friends through the Envisioning Center. I've taken you through. And I was, you know, really 
impressed by how what a thoughtful, kind man he was and how deeply he, he cared about the company. And you don't always hear about that side of him in the press. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Okay, so the summer is over. For a lot of us, it's time to get back to school or to bring renewed focus to our jobs. And maybe you're asking yourself why you're stuck focusing on lingering problems instead of new solutions. And BetterHelp is here to remind you that a therapist might not just be able to help you feel better and get more out of life. He or she may also be able to help you get out of productive ruts and perform to your potential. And I can vouch from personal experience that therapy is also great for helping you decide when it's time to launch yourself into a completely new career trajectory altogether. I've been there. If therapy is something you're thinking of, BetterHelp is a particularly convenient and affordable option. It's online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat, letting you choose whether or not you want to see anyone on camera. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now back to our Quillette podcast. We had a lot of smart people in our class, and, and one of them, he went to Microsoft around the same time you did. He, he hasn't signed the media release, so we won't say his last name. Very smart guy, successful, still at Microsoft. He, he, he had this hilarious description of something called... Licking the cookie? Not licking the cookie, although I do want to hear about licking the cookie. Um, although it sounds like <laughs> something that, that has nothing to do with, with professional life, but he called it timetable chicken. Oh yeah, schedule chicken. Schedule chicken. Can you tell us, and I, maybe schedule chicken isn't a Microsoft thing, maybe it's just a tech thing. Tell me what schedule chicken is. When we used to ship software... Like in a so box. We used to have these very long... In a box, you would, you would have to like basically take the final code, put it on a master CD or floppy disk, and then go and duplicate it millions of times. And so there was this release to manufacturing or RTM was like, okay, we are done. No more changes. And off it goes and everybody gets it. And then it's like, hope it works. I mean, I mean, we're testing it and so forth. These dates are often planned years in advance, right? Okay, we'd have like a three-year product cycle. Okay, um, so all these teams go off working together. Let's just pick Office as an example. So you got the Word team and the PowerPoint team and the Outlook team and the Access team and whatever. And they all often go to their thing. And you realize, as in any project, we're not going to make it. We, we're running late. But ultimately, what matters is not whether you make it or not. It's like you don't want to be last, Right. You know, you don't want to be the one that holds up the train. And so if you see your schedule is running behind, you're, you're, you're like, we're, okay, we're, we're coming in late, but I think their schedule's in worse shape. So we're going to let them be the one that has to push the data out. Because at some point, you either have to cut the product from the box saying it's not ready, or you push the date out and say, okay, we're going to slip the date and everybody gets more time. And so there's this political game that gets played where you just don't want to be the one who's responsible for slipping the date. It was described to me as you're going around the room and like, yeah, we're good. Yep, we're good. We're good. We're on track. But you're saying that because you know the next person is going to say, no, we need we need another yeah, you're month. You're waiting for somebody to say, oh, we need more time. And then you can say, oh, man, Chris screwed everything up. I was ready. I was ready. Exactly. Yeah. But I guess I'll use the time to refine the product even further. Exactly. That's it. So this is a family podcast. So are you able to tell me what lick the cookie is? Because it sounds gross. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know. It sounds worse than it is. 
So it's basically, so Microsoft's a very competitive place, or at least historically it was. And you'd have teams, sometimes two teams working on the same idea. And so licking the cookie was basically announcing that you were going to go do something uh, so that you would basically reserve the right to go do it. And so if some other team said, well, I want to go do this, like, oh, you can't go do that. That team's doing it. Oh, so now it makes sense. Yeah. Right. So it's basically like when a plate of cookies gets brought out, you go and lick all the cookies. And so nobody wants to eat them. And so you get to eat them all. There's an urban legend, and I want to know if it's true, about a certain acronym in relation to a, a giant anthropomorphic uh, paperclip, TFC. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's yes. true? Can you tell the story? Absolutely. I feel like I wasn't sure whether this story was real or like an urban legend about Microsoft. It is one of multiple examples where I where Bill has seen some something was demoed to Bill, and he didn't like it, and he just sort of made fun of it using. So the background here was this was sort of mid-90s. Office software or, or you know desktop software was sort of in its heyday, all the features, all this new functionality. Products were getting more complicated. And we thought, you know, and we were shipping these giant manuals in the box. Remember, it was like two feet thick. Sometimes you'd buy a box, an office box and all these manuals. With like 50 diskettes. Yes. Oh yeah. Tons of diskettes. And the idea was like, what if there was an expert in the box looking over your shoulder? Because remember you said at the beginning of this, like when you had a coding problem, you'd come ask a couple guys like me, you know, basic commands or something. Every office has like, here's the guy or the woman you go ask who's got the, you know, the answers. What if we could build that into the product itself? What if there was an assistant? We called it the office assistant. And of course, then, well, what does the assistant look like? And eventually they, they tried a bunch of different shapes and Clippy was one of the ones that, that got shipped. Clippy was the paperclip. Exactly. And as it turned out, the technology wasn't quite ready and it was just really annoying. It looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like some help? <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's true. He was, yeah. It was creepy though. It was like a guy passing by your computer saying things like, hey, what's going on? Are you writing a letter? <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was annoying. That was the thing. Uh, and we knew, yeah. like, people, the first thing people would do is turn it off. But anyway, one of the earlier versions, one of the characters was a clown. And Bill hated the idea. And he called it. You had a clown instead of a paperclip? Yeah, there was a, there was a whole cast of different characters that were tried. Wait, 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 could you change the characters? You could, yes. Sorry, did the clown have a name? Was it like... Bozo uh, or Chuckles? I, no, I don't think they had names. My favorite was there was a red bouncing ball because it would it would actually talk. But was the clown like a horror movie clown or was it like a funny clown? I honestly don't remember. And in fact, you know, now that I'm Bill just referred to it as a clown, it was something else. I honestly don't T remember. So was it TFC with that fucking clown? Is that exactly, yes. But like, so so the conceit was that a person would invest the time in actually <laughs> in changing what the character was. But like without actually turning it off, they'd say, oh, I love getting all this sort of unprompted advice, but I wish it was delivered by like, I, I want the puppy <laughs> or the penguin or and for the Japanese market, there was an office lady. Oh my God, that's so sexist. Is there some kind of website I could go to where I could see all these characters? You know, I think we are our mutual friend. Uh, might actually have more information yeah. on that because I believe he was responsible for the Japanese version at the time. In terms of the transformation, which was already well underway when, when I visited the Microsoft campus, transforming revenue streams into subscription services where you don't go to a store and pay $200 for Microsoft Word or Office or even download it for $200, you have this constantly updating thing. And again, one of the, the themes of this book about Apple that I just mentioned is how a couple of years back, Apple reinvented itself as kind of a subscription-based company. It was, it was iTunes, and it was, in many ways, your primary point of interaction was just seeing the word Apple appear on your credit card statement. And then Microsoft has done something very similar with subscription-based service for its Office products. 
But that in itself has an inherently conservative effect on a company culture because the money is kind of rolling in passively. And if you make changes, you can introduce bugs. And if there's bugs, people maybe cancel their accounts. Is it more boring and conservative to work for a subscription-based software company where, again, you the money starts rolling in even before you get to your office? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, the industry is continuing to change so rapidly that I, I, I wouldn't call it I mean, maybe there's components of it that are boring and you want them to be so, you want them to be super reliable, but there's still, you know, there's still new experiences to be developed and delivered. Right. It's like, we're, we're not done yet. Is it, it, I, can't, I can't say that all the problems that I have with, with technology have been solved. So there, there are teams, all sorts of different teams in different areas working at, you know, creating those new experiences and also just reducing the cost of them as well. Is there a natural cycle for professionals in this field that, the big innovations are going to come from young people. And that once you hit maybe your 40s and 50s, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you've committed yourself to the company, you kind of have to sort of take a back seat to people who, who are younger and are in that first flush of brilliance, which often attends early career? Well, first of all, I mean, working in tech, at least at Microsoft, for me, you realize, wow, everyone's top of their class. In fact, put in perspective, when I, uh, my first, my developer, when I worked on Excel was uh, Stephen Hawking's son, Robert. No intimidation there in terms of you know, <laughs> okay. family intelligence. I'm not just talking about brilliance. You and I have both had the privilege of working with a lot of brilliant people, but there's the kind of brilliance that manifests itself in exams and in performance reviews, but there's also the kind of brilliance that manifests itself in like, wait a sec, what if it wasn't a fork? Yeah, yeah. What if it was shaped like a disc? You, it blows your mind. And for tech companies, one person like that is often worth a hundred rank and file brilliant people. I, I think it's rare that there's always the one person that's always right. Not right, but new. There's always new and there's always people suggesting new things. Most of them aren't successful. You don't hear about them, but there's a selection bias and right. you hear about the ones that are successful. And I think there is likely a dynamic where younger people are more likely to stake or take a bigger risk on some new idea. Like I did early in my career with tablet PC. That was a big risk. I think when you're younger in career, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see where this goes. Uh, whereas folks who are older in their career are like, I don't need to take a big risk. I'm actually pretty comfortable. I just need to keep the subscription rolling in. It's very rare that a 40-year-old rock musician creates a mind-blowing new kind of sound. It's usually somebody who's closer to the age of our kids yes. who does something yes. like that. Again, I think it's it's selection bias where you're looking, of course, it's all the young people who are trying to break in into something new. You don't hear about the thousands of them that are just terrible and fail and, and go off to do something else. You only hear about the, the ones that succeed, whereas the successful musicians who've already established their sound are basically, you know, it's the Pink Floyd playing to the, the you know, people in their 50s, the same old tunes. And they're just happy to hear them again because they know that's a, it's a sure thing. My wife just went to the Duran Duran concert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is a kind of spicy topic. Like many high-tech companies, there have been social justice freakouts that Microsoft has been associated with. The one that was kind of played for laughs by especially conservative culture critics was there was a product launch and the people presenting the product it sort of went beyond a pronoun check. It was kind of like... I think I saw that actually. I think I saw that. Here, here's a little taste of it. Hello and welcome to Microsoft Ignite. We've got a big day ahead and lots in store for you. First, we want to acknowledge that the land where the Microsoft campus is situated was traditionally occupied by the Sammamish, the Duwamish, the Snoqualmie, the Suquamish, the Muckleshoot, 
the Snohomish, the Tulalip, and other Coast Salish peoples since time immemorial, a people that are still here, continuing to honor and bring to light their ancient heritage. My name is Allison Wines. I'm a senior program manager in our developer tools division. I'm an Asian and white female with dark brown hair wearing a red sleeveless top. And I'm Seth Juarez, program manager in the AI platform group. I'm a tall Hispanic male wearing a blue shirt, khaki pants. Today we kick off two days of learning more about the latest solution. You might have seen Explore. it. Um, I'm guessing maybe one or two people talked about that at the water cooler. I don't want to put you on the hot seat in terms of telling me about it. You often see conservative culture critics, especially in the last decade, saying, God, why, why is Silicon Valley so woke? The answer that I give as an outsider is, look, you're trying to attract the most brilliant people. The most brilliant people go to schools like Stanford and Harvard and Yale and NYU, and those schools happen to skew very, very, very progressive. Well, no, I, I see it kind of differently from an internal perspective. I, I think the, the event you're referring to is when the people introducing themselves were describing their appearances. I work with people who are blind. And so I immediately thought, oh, great. Now they can, they have a picture in their mind of, of what they're seeing. And so I, it, it, it struck me more as thoughtful uh, and recognizing that not everybody is able to see. I would have found that convincing had they also not done this really elaborate thing about the indigenous lands they were standing on. And It, it came across as performative, I agree. Because they, they sort of like, okay, what are all the things you need to do to be politically correct or whatever the term is now? They sort of walked the list and make sure they did it all. And it was, and it was so many things all at once. You're like, whoa, what just happened? That's new. I haven't seen that before. We talk a lot about diversity inclusion and inclusion inside Microsoft in a very supportive way. And, and the reason for that is we want to build software for everyone. We want to be the world's provider of, of productivity tools that helps you, you know, get more done, lead a more fulfilling life, be an active participant in society. And there are a lot of people who have disabilities, you know, my daughter amongst them. And, and so we have to really think about how do we build experiences that, that can help, can provide accommodations for people with different levels of ability. You have to not only hire people with those disabilities to, have, to make sure you incorporate their thinking, but also just always thinking about it when you develop products and services. I know somebody who is uh, sight impaired, and I think he told me, ironically, it was much easier for him to navigate the old text-based DOS environment yeah. using speech prompts. A graphic environment with two-dimensional sort of mouse cursor going all yeah. over the place is actually very difficult for somebody who's blind. Yeah, that's why you need to hire somebody who, for example, hire a blind tester, who actually, right. in one case, I worked with one, who would actually go through and test and provide that feedback. My last question is going to be about retirement. And I get the sense people who are as smart as you and a very active interest, like you don't really retire in the traditional sense. I can't see you playing golf and mahjong at the, the local seniors rec center, although that does sound kind of fun. We had a discussion, I forget what the context was, a couple of years ago. You were talking to me about how I think some of the smartest people that you like to hire they were really good at the thing you were hiring them for. And they were also like a symphonic clarinetist, or they were also like a champion snowboarder, or they were also the world's best tic-tac-toe player, like, or they made sailboats, or there yeah. was some yeah. other thing. You know what it was? I, I've noticed, it's a trend I've seen over my career, that if somebody is able to get really good at one thing, they tend to have the, the characteristics, the skills to be able to apply that to whatever area they want to, or they need to. So if they're the, you know, the world's best French horn player, that takes a lot of perseverance and, and energy and focus. And you give them a, and if they can code, they can take that same energy 
and apply it to a coding problem, more than likely going to do a really good job at it. So that's on the that's on the intake side, but then those people work for a couple of decades. They become very privileged people who not everybody can retire, you know, in their mid fifties. And then those people have like thirty years of life left. And and you've been in the industry long enough to see this pattern play out. Do they then go back to the French horn or do they get restless and start their own mini Microsoft six months from now because they just They start all sorts of things. Uh one of the Man, I worked with started some sort of automatic brewing company where it's like a little kit. You can brew your own beer in a little box type of thing. I know a guy who who's just bought up an apple orchard now makes some apple cider. Like people find the thing that excites them and they go and they pour their energy into that. Other people form start nonprofits. Uh, I know a guy who's focused on bringing books to underprivileged kids around the world. Just, you know, the, the list goes on and on. People find something that they enjoy doing and, and makes them feel they have, they're having the kind of impact on the world they want to have, and they go invest their energy in that. And was discovering what that thing would be for you part of the trigger point for timing your own retirement? The, the truth of my situation is my wife and I both work full-time at Microsoft, uh, she's been there almost 25 years. I'm almost 30 years. If I remember correctly, she's senior on the finance side. Yeah, she works in on, in finance org and, and doing very well. And we have a daughter, a 15-year-old daughter with special needs. And uh, as you may have heard from friends with kids with special needs, just managing her care can be a full-time job, especially when you try to look beyond schooling and she has to get integrated into society. And so as we looked at our future, we said, you know, the, the number one thing we could do to improve the quality of our day-to-day life, as well as guarantee a, a happy future, is for one of us to stop working. And so it just made more sense for a number of reasons for that to be me. Wow. You're like Peralta on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that reference. <laughs> I'm going to leave it in the edit because there's enough people who are going to know it. At the same time, I recognize I probably have a good 30 if I'm lucky, 30 years left. And uh, after spending sure. you know, more than a decade envisioning the future, seeing where things are going, seeing how work is changing, I'm like, wow, I have an opportunity, a unique opportunity to take the time to sort of redesign the rest of our lot. And so I want to think deeply about what it is that I would like to do, how I want to contribute uh, and, and come up with something completely new. And one of my projects will be you know, focused on my daughter and getting her set up for long-term success as well. David Jones, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts on the Quillette podcast. Thank you, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.